All right, here we go. What's up, everyone? Coach D, the Shift Method Podcast. Hope everyone's having a wonderful day. Episode 27, got a returning guest coming on, one of my closest friends who I convinced to move down to the South Florida region. I'm very happy to have her nearby so we can hang out and do all kinds of awesome and fun things, but also gives me a good opportunity to talk to her some more about some cool stuff that she did in grad school, which we'll talk about today. And that is my good friend, Katie Hoff. Katie, can you introduce yourself to people who don't know you? Woohoo! Yes. Thank you, Damien. So excited to be on for the second time. Um, yes, loving the South Florida life. Damien was a, a big piece. He thinks small, but big piece of me, uh, you know, taking the move down here from Tampa. Um, really have enjoyed my time in Florida so far and was really excited to make this kind of move after grad school and a little bit of a career shift. So um, on the shift method, shift. You know, there you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, always got to throw that in there, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, last time I think I was on, I was just starting graduate school. I was just starting my graduate assistantship at University of South Florida, USF. Um, there I was supervising a team of personal trainers, also pursuing my master's in exercise science. Um, and actually, at the beginning of my graduate school experience there, I got connected through a past internship, Cressy Sports Performance. Um, to a new startup company that I had never heard of before called Altus Movement Technologies. Um, they're a tech company, a fitness tech company to be specific, that is creating and delivering the first, the world's first artificial intelligence personal trainer um, to gyms and homes all over the country. We actually just had our first four deployments um, this past month, which has been really exciting. Um, so I started working remotely for them part-time during graduate school, um, which kind of exposed me to a new, you know, interesting, you know, path that fitness, you know, potentially has, which is all these connected fitness companies and now artificial intelligence being a huge part of that. Um, and this was something new and exciting that I did throughout graduate school. Um, really loved the way that I was able to contribute during that time. So after graduating, it, it made perfect sense to move, you know, down here to where they're headquartered in Fort Lauderdale um, and continue working with them on their exercise science team. So I've had a great experience so far and, you know, it's been a little chaotic here and there with launching to gyms for the first time, but it's been a, a really awesome experience and ride. And yeah, I, I have nothing but good things to say regarding my graduate school experience, um, getting my master's. It's It's been a wild couple couple years down here in Florida, but I'm happy that I'm here to stay for at least a while and, and be down here with Damien. So yeah, life is good. Yes. And like Katie mentioned, you know, involved in a lot of different things from the graduate school side, the strength and conditioning side. Uh, now in the AI personal training space, and a, that'll be potentially a separate podcast. We're going to hold the AI stuff because that is so much you could talk about there, but we're going to focus in on her research and I'll be sure to uh, link our first podcast together down in the notes. That way y'all can check that out. Uh, we talked about really cool things about coaching and some clients and some coaching psychology. So other really cool information there, but we're going to go over now that Katie's officially been done with grad school. We're going to go over her kind of grad school experience, specifically in the research field, because um, as she mentioned, she was at USF, and they have a really, really good research program with uh, Dr. Campbell down there. So it's a very um, well-known, established area. So Katie, can you just kind of talk a little bit about, you know, the lab itself, kind of what kind of research they're focusing on, and then maybe dive into a little bit of some research that you helped with there? Yeah, heck yeah, absolutely. So Starting off in grad school, you know, like I said, I was very involved in campus recreation. Um, being a graduate assistant was kind of my focus in the beginning. 
Um, but as I explored more in my, my classes being very research focused, all three, you know, professors I had have their own labs and they're very, you know, well-renowned labs with lots of research being put out constantly. I was very drawn to this idea of like, hey, maybe I want to go down, you know, the academia route and, and do research of my own one day. And even if not, you know, it's an awesome opportunity to get that. I, I dived in a little bit in undergrad, um, but it wasn't necessarily research that I was passionate about. It was just you know, something that looked good on the resume and something that I want to diversify my skill set with. But in grad school, you know, learning this content about, you know, muscle and strength and, you know, the physiology behind it, um, you know, in one class and then in Dr. Campbell's really diving into the nutrition and the, the different systems and processes that go on, you know, um, in the body, like during, you know, nutrition and sport, like was, was very interesting and something that I've been passionate about for a long time. So I knew, you know, this would be a research opportunity that, you know, I might really want to get heavily involved with here. So um, although it wasn't my focus on grad school, it was something that I wanted to add and, and potentially see if I would, you know, want to go down that academia route, um, which obviously I decided not to. Um, but nonetheless, it, it was an amazing opportunity to work in these different labs. So as Damien mentioned, um, Dr. Bill Campbell. Um, so he heads up um, the Physique Enhancement Lab at USF, um, which, and he's changed his focus a few different times. He used to work more in powerlifting and bodybuilding populations, um, you know, more athletic type um, populations, um, physique athletes in, you know, all different levels. Um, he did a lot of research in powerlifting and more competitive sports there. And then he's kind of shifted a little bit now to talking more about general population, uh, namely women, females, um, and resistance training and different dietary interventions. So a lot of what he does has to do with, you know, different diet structures, different ways of, um, you know, utilizing macronutrients and tracking. Um, so protein is highlighted a lot in his research, high protein diets. Um, he's written a lot of papers on creatine and other position stands on other supplements that maybe you've seen um, out there in the fitness and research space. But when I started grad school, his focus at the time for the last few years has been resistance training studies in trained and untrained um, female populations, um, mostly undergraduate students as, you know, that's easiest to recruit, um, being that we're on a college campus. So the study that I got involved with, I was one of the um, resistance training coaches. So his lab is not the traditional lab where you'd think of, you know, test tubes and all these different, you know, biomechanic machines and, and cameras and stuff going on, very different, literally look like a strength and conditioning gym, small, but tons of equipment packed in there, deadlifting platforms, squat racks, bench presses. Um, he had everything going on. We had tubs of protein everywhere. It was very, very cool environment. Everyone really enjoyed being in there together. Um, and the study that I kind of dived into when I got there was one where we were looking at the effects of macronutrient tracking um, that prioritized a high protein diet um, on hunger and eating behaviors. So particularly this was in young females. So what we were looking at is what's the relationship between, you know, tracking very strictly your macronutrients um, with keeping protein very high and potentially, you know, disordered eating behaviors. Because traditionally we kind of link those two together, right? The more strict mm -hmm. you are with your diet, the more strict you are with tracking in general, like exercise habits, nutritional habits, the more likely you are down the road to maybe, you know, you know, come across an eating disorder or some sort of disordered eating behavior. So he wanted to dive into that and look and see if we did a short-term study, just eight weeks, we combine it with nutrition coaching and we combine it with, 
you know, sound resistance training protocols. These girls would come in three days a week for eight weeks and do resistance training with us that was programmed and coached. Um, and we had two groups. So we had a tracking group where they had to track 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight per day of protein. That's a lot of protein, even for people like me and you, Damien, right? Like yeah. that's, that's tough to eat that much. And these are girls who have never resistance trained in their lives, let alone, you know, done that in combination with tracking yeah. every meal every day and hitting very specific amounts of protein. That's hard. So we had a group that did that. And then we had a control group where they just came in, they did their three day a week program, still coached by us, still programmed by us. Um, but they were allowed to eat, you know, however they wanted wasn't mm -hmm. tracked. We did collect a food log from them over the last seven days, just so we could see, you know, compare across diets and see how that may have differed being on the diet versus not. Um, and then what we were looking at were some different variables related to psychometrics. So things like dietary restraint, things like hunger levels, fullness levels, their desire to eat, all things that we would associate with disordered eating. We looked at all of these at the end of the study and we did not find any significant differences between the groups. Interesting. So not expected, the hypothesis of the study was that we would find a significant difference being that we were making such a drastic change and such a, such a strict change mm -hmm. to people's, you know, their lifestyle, their students too, they're, you know, they're busy, they got, you know, social lives, all these things happening, academics, um, you know, and now we're putting this on top of it. So, you know, I definitely would have guessed, and from my experience and, you know, tracking and disordered eating behaviors that I had when I was younger, I would have absolutely guessed that there would have been a, a big significant difference. However, we didn't find that. Um, so, so that was interesting to me with this study and unexpected, but it, it does shed a little bit of positive light on how tracking can be beneficial if done well and if done with support is, is probably the key here. They were supported. It wasn't a long period of time. It was only eight weeks, mm -hmm. probably still, you know, felt like crap, but it wasn't like they were putting themselves on a strict tough diet for six months or a year, which I think in those cases maybe would push someone to be a little bit more likely to dive into that disordered eating behavior. But yeah, that, that was kind of the main study that I was involved with uh, at uh, Dr. Campbell's lab. Was there a restriction on calories? Or was it as long as you hit your protein goal, you can consume as many calories as you like? Yeah, just the protein goal. Yep, okay. just high protein. Yep, and we we also looked at other things too. Like we wanted to see, you know, how this affected their muscle growth, being that they're untrained. Mm -hmm. What is the muscle growth differences and the body fat percentage differences um, between these two groups? Those are other things we looked at. I don't have those results. Um, I don't know if that was written up yet. Um, but, but that was interesting to look at as well. We had, um, we actually had a third group in this study as well that I didn't mention because it wasn't important for these results, but we had another group where we wanted them just to double their protein intake for any given meal that they normally have. So we're not giving them a number, like we're giving the one group. We're not saying 2.2 right. grams per kilogram of body weight. We're just saying, if you normally have a scoop of protein powder in the morning, make it two. If you normally have two eggs for lunch, make it four. So this is another method of tracking that we don't always think about, you know, yeah. as, as coaches or nutritionists or dietitians, we normally think about the numbers and we normally think about, you know, prescribing and making sure people hit their macros. We wanted to look at, you know, does just telling someone as simple as, you know, double your protein intake, can that change things such as muscle growth, strength, you know, uh, 
body fat percentage, things like that. I don't have the results um, for that part of the study, but that was also an interesting uh, component yeah. that we added just to see like stricter tracking versus a more loose, intuitive way of tracking. Right. On the, that's awesome. I think probably like, like you mentioned, I know tracking has gotten a lot of negative attention as of late. And I think some of it is certainly warranted. I know uh, my friend is the FB dietitian talk about a lot, how if it's very restrictive tracking and it's not sustainable, and especially people who may have tendencies toward disordered eating, yeah, absolutely. It probably isn't the best thing for people like that to participate in those types of uh, behaviors. But I have some clients who really like it. They like the regimen, they like the numbers, and they like to see it. I wonder if the reason why they didn't have any of those metrics changed on the dietary side is like you said, the support. Mm-hmm. And because it wasn't restrictive. If anything, they may have a more because you said you need to eat more protein probably than they were already consuming saying right. the 2.2 grams per kilogram um and also too it's it's a good recommendation because leaving all other or the other two macronutrients aside fat and carbohydrate we know that protein is the highest in satiety generally so it's kind of hard to overeat on protein so it's usually a, a good recommendation so right. maybe it's the restrictive versus like goal components like how you frame it. it's like hey we're not saying you can only eat 1600 calories or 1200 calories whatever bull crap number they make up but instead your goal is to get this much protein because it may help facilitate your goals right so making it more goal oriented and more outcome based rather yes. than restriction based and like if you do this yes then this bad thing might happen right it's less fear based it's more yeah it's more motivating that's that's more empowering to someone you know starting a fitness journey i i totally agree with that 100 percent and then, like you said, the intuitive uh, leg of the of the study, where it's like, "Hey, double what you would normally do," that's also a good st- a good kind of method. I do like obviously, I'm not a registered dietitian. I give dietary education when needed, and I use some kind of ways to support my clients' goals because diet is, is tied into there. But I don't prescribe. But sometimes, if my clients are struggling, I might recommend, "Hey, you know, it might be a a good idea to consider increasing your protein intake." or increasing your vegetable intake. Um, and usually that's what I'll tell them. Like, hey, consider if you are having a protein for dinner, considering adding more of it or doubling the portion because it'll generally fill them up more. It'll generally be good because they're resistance training for me anyway. So it kind of checks all the boxes and they don't have to worry about tracking on the phone. They're like, I don't want an app. I don't want to do that. It's right. like, yeah, just, just add another chicken breast if that, right. if that works for you. Some people don't need that extra obstacle. In fact, no. it, it does the exact opposite. It pushes them away and they're like, you know what? I'm just going to do nothing now. I'm just going to yep. throw in the towel and just say, you know, screw it. And, and exactly. that's obviously not what we want. We know that's not what's best for our clients, but I love what you said. And I read something recently, or maybe I saw it somewhere on social media, the, this idea of like add instead of eliminating, like yes. we're adding things into our life rather than you know, eliminating the bad things. That could be on the exercise side. That could be on the nutrition side. Um, I just think that's such a great mind, mindset shift um, that that would benefit so many people with, you know, the way that we're inundated with fitness and nutrition. Um, yes. Kind of, you know, bullshit for lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, you know, our industry is, is, is rife with it. So I think that's a really good way to kind of promote healthy behaviors. I love that. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good message. Promote or advocate for, don't restrict. Right. I like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Now I kind of want to, you know, go into the other parts. So that was something you got to assist with as kind of a strength coach in that research study. 
but then you also had the opportunity to be a coordinator for another study. Can you kind of talk about how that went a little bit? Yes, yes. This was a, a long and interesting journey um, being the coordinator for this project. I, I'll be honest, I didn't quite know what I was getting into when I started. I thought it was going to be, you know, maybe a couple months, maybe the study takes a semester um, and, you know, it'll be a really great experience getting to lead a team and see a project through from start to finish. Um, boy, did I learn a lot during that time. It was it was interesting. Um, and like I said, I was interested in going into academia at one point. Um, and I think kind of really diving into the research side of things and, you know, all the administrative work that has to be done to, to lead up a study and actually see it through. Um, I don't want to say pushed me away from wanting to pursue it as a career path, but it exposed the parts that are really difficult and really challenging mm -hmm. um, and helped me to kind of carve out where I wanted to go next. So I, I knew that research wasn't it after this. Um, for me personally, um, if anything, that gives me more respect and more um, gratitude for all of the amazing research that is done and that, you know, that's the evidence that we use to do to do great work out in the industry, whether it's, you know, you as a coach, as a trainer, whether it's me creating a, you know, technology product, I, I really have a lot of gratitude and respect for all the research that's done. But oh, yeah. All, all that to say, just just a little bit of perspective on the the process and and um, you know academia as a whole. Um, I'll kind of dive into what the project was, um, what it was like um, leading that, what the process kind of looked like from the inside, and then what we kind of found out at the end, which is the interesting part of the story, um, or maybe a little bit disappointing. But I don't want to give too much until we get there. Um, so essentially, I was. Um, kind of asked by another professor in our department, Dr. Marcus Kilpatrick. He was going to co-investigate um, a, pro a product um, that it was not yet on the market to um, look at how this product would affect or maybe change muscle soreness and performance in, you know, highly trained endurance runners. So we're not talking about you know, myself or other fitness enthusiasts who might, you know, engage in resistance training and maybe run a little bit. These were people who are running 15 to 20 miles per week or more. Oh, um, and, and that is that is traditional running, right? Like on a treadmill, on a path, like this couldn't be, you know, playing basketball. This couldn't be, you know, engaging in another sport. <laughs> yeah, you're you're immediately out there. At I'm first, done. I was like, oh, wait, Damien might have been able to be a subject. No, no, <laughs> play a lot of ball. But if you don't run on a treadmill, mm, no. Yeah, so that was our first challenge that we encountered was finding subjects that fit our criteria on a college campus. This was really hard. Our age range was between 18 and 45 years old. Um, but it was challenging because we ran out of the young college age students very quickly. A lot of them, you know, we would come to find that they maybe ran five miles a week. We had a lot of people tell us they ran a lot more than they did. Once we did a VO2 max test, it was very evident you know, <laughs> that they were lying because, you know, we, we paid a pretty good amount for the study. The incentive was nice because it was tough and I'll, I'll get into why it was tough in a second um but yeah so we started by piloting the project so we wanted to see what kind of protocol did we need to do to induce muscle soreness in the first place because if you run a lot it's probably hard to make someone who's highly endurance trained sore that's like someone who you know resistance trains really heavy all the time um really hard grinds in the gym it's you have to put together a pretty kick-ass workout to make someone sore, or you have to change what they're doing pretty significantly mm -hmm. to elicit that soreness, right? Same thing with runners. We couldn't just give them like a brutal, you know, five to 10 mile run because they're like, 
I do 60 miles a week. What, like this, this isn't gonna make me sore, right? So we trialed and errored a ton of times. We ended up finding out that we couldn't make them sore through running alone. And although the study was focused on runners because the product was gonna be geared and marketed and, and targeted towards the running population, mm -hmm. um, we ended up having to actually add resistance training to the protocol. Because a lot of these runners, some of them, very few of them already engaged in resistance training. And if they did, it wasn't very often and they weren't highly knowledgeable in how to resistance train. So we gave them a brutal, brutal circuit. And <laughs> I, when I say brutal, I never even did it myself because I, I, I already knew we were doing like four second eccentrics on RDLs, oh. with like four second pause at the bottom, followed by a goblet squat in the same manner, then a split squat, then a calf raise, like, oh my God, with eccentrics and holds like we were, we were trying to murder these people, right? <laughs> um, and it worked. We finally found a protocol with, you know, in addition to the running and the resistance training, we can consistently make people sore. So now what we had to do was get people into different groups. So we wanted to test if a particular product could help in a preventative way to prevent soreness. So they would mm -hmm. use this product actually before they did the running protocol, not after. So before they even stepped on the treadmill, they used this product, right? So we had two, uh, three different groups. One was the experimental product. One was a placebo product. And then the third was control, no product, right. right? And the protocol was absolutely brutal. It was, you know, their VO2 max running at 100% of their VO2 max at an 8% incline, crazy incline on the treadmill. Like I was afraid these people would fall off sometimes <laughs> um, for like 90 seconds straight. Then they would get 60 seconds rest back on for 90 seconds straight, 60 seconds rest. And some people like they really kicked ass. They would go for, you know, 20, 30 minutes and, and they weren't giving up. We were there for some very long nights because some of these runners were, you know, you know, I'm sure pride played a part of it too, right? Like I want to you know, beat the guy who went before me because we'd have multiple people come in and they wanted to outrun each other. But um, it, it was pretty crazy to witness. It was pretty cool. And seeing people's VO2 max scores was also pretty crazy. I think the highest we saw was like a, a 69 or a Holy 70. shit. Yeah. Insane numbers. And then I'm over here pulling like a 29, like no joke. <laughs> Seeing these people come in and like some, you know, I don't want to say older folks, but people, you know, our max age limit was 45. So we had 45 year olds, you know, absolutely, you know, wow. doing incredible things with their VO2 max, like 60s, 70s, insane. VO2 like max, max, no joke either, man. <laughs> what would you say? The VO2 max test is no joke either. Oh, no. Right. That that thing Fucks. was, um, yeah, very, very tough. And we didn't do, there's a few different ways you could do a VO2 max <laughs> test on a treadmill. We did the protocol where the incline goes up and up and up until it reaches 8%. And then the speed goes up every minute. It goes up by a mile per hour. So we start at three miles per hour, then four, five, six, seven, eight. I think the person who maxed out the most was going like 12 miles per hour, maybe 13 at an 8% grade. And they're absolutely wasted by the time they're done with this protocol. For um, non-runners, that is a 12 miles per hour. It's a five minute mile pace at insane. an incline while already taxed and fatigued. Sorry, just right. go just to show how stupid that is. Right. And a lot of these people <laughs> were distance runners too. They were marathon runners. We reached out to a lot of marathon groups. Um, in the Tampa Bay area to, to try to find, you know, these crazy people out there that love to run so much. Yeah. Um, I think our person in the study who ran the most um, was a man and he ran, I think it was between 70 and 80 miles per week was his average, he told us. I don't know what he's training for. 
<laughs> but it is something crazy. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, pretty interesting stuff. Um, totally out of my comfort zone too, right? Not being a runner, I've never trained runners, I've never coached runners, I've never written running protocols, to be completely honest. Like if I wanted to start learning how to run tomorrow, I, you know, would probably hire a coach. I would definitely hire a coach who understands running programming and mechanics and how to coach me to peak for a race. That is absolutely outside of my, you know, area of expertise. I am much more into strength sports and athletics and, and that kind of realm. So totally different research for me, but I thought it was cool. The idea that we were testing this product and seeing if it could actually help, you know, on the preventative side, because a lot of what we do in fitness and, and, you know, health and, and medicine in general is very um, reactive, right? Mm -hmm. We usually, you know, we'll take something after there's already pain to get that pain to go away. This really intrigued me because it was kind of getting almost to the root of what's, what's causing the soreness. It was, you know, the idea was to help prevent soreness before it even happened. So I thought that was really cool. Could potentially help people, you know, sustain more mileage per week, um, you know, reach higher intensities more often. And, and my mind immediately went to, I would love this for resistance training. I know being sore can, can be an indicator that maybe you've done too much sometimes, but oftentimes it just means you did something new and you didn't necessarily get stronger. And it's just kind of annoying, right? Like, I don't like when my legs are sore for four days. I'm like, damn, I, I want to get to my next workout. Right. And I, I can't do legs again until the soreness goes away. Um, so that aspect of the project was really intriguing to me. So kind of tangent there, I'll pull it back to where, where we were going with the project. Um, so our number that we needed was 70 subjects. Every subject had to come in two times total for 90 minutes. They did their, their VO2 max test on the first day. And then the second day was at least a week later, no longer than two weeks after the first. And that's when they did that brutal, you know, uh, intervals along with the strength training with the isometrics and the eccentric movements. So absolutely crushed them that second day. Then we pulled them or surveyed them 24 hours and 48 hours later to find out their soreness levels, right? And in an ideal world, what this company would have loved to see in order to, you know, verify that their product has some utility, right, for endurance athletes is one that, you know, the experimental group does better than the placebo group and the control group for sure. And then the experimental group obviously should do much better than the control group, right? Mm -hmm. That would be in an ideal world what he would want to see. Well, what we saw was that the experimental group and the placebo group, they did better than the control but neither of them did better than each other. Mm. If, if anything, the control group actually, or the placebo group did a little bit better than the experimental group, which is the opposite of what you want to see. That old placebo group, man. <laughs> the placebo group, yeah. They, they, so both groups did feel less sore than those who used no product at all. However, there was no difference between experimental and placebo. So that's really bad news. So they wanted to investigate a little bit more, you know, what may have happened, you know, was, you know, was the product really a fluke or was there something else? So this company, and this is, you know, the tragic part that I kind of alluded to earlier, this company went back to the manufacturing compound that, you know, created the product for them, kind of looked to see what may have gone wrong between the placebo and the experimental. They found out that the two products were exactly the same, not exactly the same, but the active ingredient, the one that would have made the difference in the product was in the same concentration in both of the products. Mm. So essentially we were not, we weren't really doing a study comparing two different things. We were just seeing if one cream worked better than no cream. I see. 
There was nothing to compare. Um, so in this case, we can't really draw any conclusions from the study, um, nor were we able to, you know, confirm anything for the company, which is really sad. Um, our research team wasn't able to, you know, write up a manuscript and talk about our findings since, you know, they were they were skewed and biased from what happened, whatever, you know, issue happened at, on the manufacturing side. Um, so that was kind of the sad ending to that project. Um, al although it was a really, uh, you know, fun project and like interesting task and project to take on. Um, it is definitely disappointing, you know, on the research side and then and also the company's side that it kind of ended, you know, in the way that it did. Yeah, that's the unfortunate part of research is that, you know, it's it's done by people and this is not on the researcher side. It was just the manufacturer, but like, you know, shit's not perfect and stuff's going to happen. Um, for the, are you allowed to say, what the claimed active ingredient was for the product. The are you asking what the active ingredient was or what are the you, claim? Uh, what the active ingredient was, if you're allowed to say, in the product. If mm. not, no worries. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure if I am. So I guess to be safe, I probably shouldn't. No worries. They, the company is actually. I can say this: they're going to do the study again, like okay. the different um, research lab, one that might be a little bit more affordable um, than to do it again through. Um, USF. Um, but I, I really hope, you know, for the best for them, I think, you know, they potentially have something there, but we've said this a million times in our research group, like we are just the researchers. We are just the ones conducting. We don't have any, you know, biases towards wanting this product to really work as much as, you know, we might like the people who run the company. We, we have to try as much as we can to be unbiased um, because, you know, as much as we want to give them a positive result, because that'll make them happy, we're just the scientists and the researchers and our job is just to, you know, discover the truth about the product and then, you know, deliver those results to them. So that was something, you know, I had to keep reminding myself of throughout the study when we would look at early results and I'm like, oh man, I, I really want it to start pulling, you know, in a direction that looks good for them. I had to always take a step back and be like, this is the way research works yep. and, you know, good on this company for not wanting to just go to market without any research backing it up, yeah. you know, not good on them for, for wanting to do this and wanting to make sure that their product actually helps people. So it, it was a really cool experience. And, and I'm grateful that, um, you know, I was asked to, uh, to be, uh, have a leadership role with the project. It was, it was really awesome getting to develop a, a team of researchers and, and see where different people's skills lie and, and kind of push myself beyond the limits of what I'd ever done in, um, you know, the fitness and academia world before. So very, yeah. very grateful for my, for my experiences at USF. I do have one question about it before we wrap up here. Yeah. Was it met, was the study measuring perceived soreness only, or was it also measuring maybe biological markers of recovery and fatigue? And the reason I ask that is it's a curious thing, right? If in fact the product did work and it makes you feel less sore, which theoretically can make you train more, is that a good thing or a bad thing if you then go train with the perception that you your body is adequately recovered, but you're actually just sore as hell, your body's wrecked, and you can't really get the feedback of your body saying, I'm not fit for training today, or I need to use my auto-regulation and bring it back, but the receptor is saying, no, 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 we're good to go. And so there's that disconnect there. Right. Yeah. No, great question. It was very subjective and it was very perception based. So, 
And that's probably the reason why we saw both experimental and placebo groups do so much better than control because they know that they used a product, right? Mm -hmm. So they have a perception that, you know, this is going to help me in some way, shape or form. We had them put it on before running and we had them use the product also, you know, at night. So we had them use it twice. Um, so they were very aware that they were using this product. They didn't forget about it. Um, and they had to, you know, use this product for multiple days. Um, so I, I do think there's a psychological and, and likely a placebo effect involved. Um, I don't know if there's any, you know, biological markers that could be checked. Maybe that could be something in a future study if they are able to do that um, to see what happens more at the cellular level. Um, I know that might be years down the road, mm. something like that, you know, for science to develop. But um, as of now and with our study, it was all, you know, perception based, you know, rank your soreness zero through 10, um, describe your soreness levels. So, you know, stabbing, sharp, tingling, like we had all different types of right, you know, right. pain measures. Some of them were, were kind of funny. Um, like one was like punishing and, you know, there's like all <laughs> sorts of funny names. Um, and like one person, <laughs> this is just funny. One person put like 10 out of 10 for punishing one time. And we were like, oh my God, we literally killed this guy. Like, shoot. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was very subjective. It was very based off of, you know, how the person felt in that moment, which we told them, you know, not to exercise outside of the study for those few, you know, 48 hours before and after. We don't know if people followed that either, right? People right. have been doing tough strength training the day before and we'd have no idea. So that would influence, you know, their soreness levels. But I thought about the exact scenario that you're thinking about. Why would we want to, you know, decrease a signal in the body that might actually mean something as much as we know it doesn't necessarily mean strength or hypertrophy what if soreness sometimes keeps us from injuring ourselves or pushing past a point that we shouldn't yeah i thought that was an interesting point and and something to keep in mind as we continue to develop you know these these you know scientific ways that we can almost alter our body's perceptions right it's it's yeah. interesting to think about something for future research but yes i think yeah. I think that's a good place to, to put a bow on it. So Katie, thank you so much for taking the time to kind of talk about the research experiences you had. I think those things, especially, I really like the, the tracking aspect that you mentioned in the other one too. That's very, very interesting. And then also for people to get some insight into the research world, whether just as a casual listener or someone who maybe is interested in research for grad or PhD school, uh, some things right. to consider. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Damien. I, I appreciate all of your questions and I appreciate getting to just have a conversation about some cool, good old nerdy science stuff with you, as always. Also, we do this like on a daily basis when we hang out, not just on the yes, podcast. We we're yes, we're we always being big nerds together. So I always appreciate it. That's right. Is there anything you want to plug where people can find you, anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not like an active, uh, super active on social media in terms of, you know, fitness or health advice. Um, but feel free if you want to follow me on Instagram at Katie Sedona. Um, I'm sure Damien will also put that in his uh, link under the description. But yeah, right now, a lot of the stuff you'll see me posting about is related to the company I work for right now, Altus, and some of the cool stuff we're doing with um, fitness tech and, and being in gyms for the first time. So awesome. Thank you. Very cool. Y'all know where to find me. If you're interested in training, I only have a couple of spots left for in-person training in the mornings at Johnny O's Gym in South Florida. I do have some spots for online coaching, but it's kind of a little new announcement. Hopefully going to be doing 
something else with online coaching that's going to be a little bit more for the masses. So stay tuned on that for some future posts that I got on that. Very, very excited uh, through Train Heroic to do some stuff there. Um, otherwise, you can always get some merch. You said over to shiftmethod.org, click the store tab. Y'all can get some nice shirts, some water bottles, some shorts, anything you want to get. And if you're interested in coaching with me, you can DM me on Instagram. That's the underscore shift underscore method. TikTok is the same. And I hope to see y'all there. Katie, thank you so much, homie. Appreciate you as thank always. Thank you, Damien. Bye. See you later.